Hey everyone, and welcome to Eater's Digest, a show about all things food and dining. This is Amanda Clute, Editor-in-Chief of Eater. And today on the show, we are going to rebroadcast an interview I did with the chef and restaurateur Marcus Samuelson for the 92nd Street Y. We recorded it earlier in the summer, but I think it is still incredibly relevant right now. Um, Daniel and I are taking these dog days of summer off of the show to get our heads back in the game for September. So we hope you enjoy this interview, uh, super interesting conversation, and we will be back after Labor Day. Welcome, Marcus. Thank you very much, Amanda, for having me. Of course. Uh, so I wanted to start by just laying the groundwork and giving context for the audience as to what your restaurant portfolio looks like and how many employees you have and the changes you had to make in March, right? The kit and cities started shutting down. Well, first, I want to say thank you to Andy Second Street Y. I've, I've had the great pleasure to be on stage. Uh, both uptown and downtown. And I remember particularly one time I did it with Anthony Bourdain uh, uptown. And uh, it also happened to be one of the nights that I got three stars from New York Times. So I was very nervous and Tony was messing <laughs> with me the whole time. <laughs> so I just remember that. I was laughing at that. So, yeah, I mean, um, this, is a, this is a pivotal moment in, in, in American history for to, for, for many reasons, but um, when COVID, you know, when COVID started sort of enter the restaurant world, I would say was the last week of February, the first week of March, sometimes around that. Uh, we were operating in eight countries, uh, obviously in New York and Harlem being the hub, but in Four Seasons in Montreal, we have a beautiful fish restaurant called Marcus. We have in uh, Caribbean islands as well and London and um, Scandinavia. So that first week of March, it was, I kind of wanted to throw my phone away because it was just, what are you doing in at least four or five different languages? And, and, mm-hmm. and I say that also because it also showcase how different America runs than those, you know, Canada has, a healthcare system that works. So does Scandinavia, and even the UK, and 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 also have an unemployment system that works. So it actually was easier to furlough and talk about responsibilities in these other countries, although they're further away than it was mm-hmm. right here at home. And then also, you don't have the same level of deep tissue poverty that we have to deal with here. So. Um, I know we like to think about America as a first world country and as a leading country in the world, but it's also equally a third world country. And it's very important to, to think about that. And, and that leaves us a lot of room to improve. Over. Mm-hmm. And so what did you do to change the model of these restaurants? I know some you turned into community kitchens. Some did you shut down outright for the time being? Yeah, it was a combination. I mean, the... Quite frankly, with a restaurant in Newark, Harlem, and Overtown, and we're a week away from opening in Overtown in Miami, uh, with a plan of creating jobs in predominantly African-American 
uh, iconic neighborhoods like Overtown, like Newark and, and Harlem, we know right away that this is, these neighbors going to be hit much, much harder. Um, you know, I live in Harlem and I walk five minutes to my restaurant. So every day I see, uh, you know, I walk five minutes east of me. I'm in the middle of a house, big housing project. I walk three minutes west. I'm next to Maya Angelou's brownstone. Do you know what I mean? That, that's kind of mm-hmm. America in a nutshell. But it also opens the eyes for me directly to see the different sort of valleys and, 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 and what are the opportunities to improve on. And I knew that we have to change. And calling Jose Andres, having, I mean, if you think about restaurant, it means to, core word means to restore your community. And what is a chef? It's really you link people together from all aspects, right? From purveyors, from customers to staff. This was the time, this was my pivotal moment to say, okay, if you're a chef with this platform, you have to start reaching out. And I started to reach out to Jose Andres in World Central Kitchen. Um, and I called a lot of different uh, people that could help us to raise money. We raised the money in a couple of weeks. So far, we raised over four, uh, $4 million. Wow. Uh, and we served 100,000 meals between Newark, uh, Overtown, and uh, just between Newark and Harlem, actually. Wow. And those that effort is continuing now. It's continuing, and three weeks, two weeks into it, we started to build on. We said we can't, Amanda. We served a thousand meals a day, and the line we could have served two thousand. Mm-hmm. So as long as soon as World Central Kitchen really found out on that, that they were like, okay, we got to continue, and we started to raise money and activate ten other restaurants in Harlem uh, to serve two to three hundred uh, portions as well each which means that we get up to 4,000 people in just in Harlem a day being served. That really does three things, and they're really important. It serves the neediest and the first responders. It also allows us to hire staff back, people mm-hmm. who really need to work in a safe way. And then second, and thirdly, it helped uh, the very broken infrastructure, the food infrastructure that was completely broken between purveyors and restaurants, because, you know, in the deepest of this, 80% of all restaurants in America were closed. So think about farmers have to start burning food. Um, in, in Newark, it was a little bit different. Audible, we had, uh, you know, Don Katz that started Audible, reached out right away, and he helped out to help us raise, raise the money. But the same structure there, 10 restaurants in Newark are involved, and we're serving about 3,000 meals a day in Newark alone. So it's wow. important. So the idea with with groups like World Central Kitchen is that the government will give them money so they can give it to restaurants to feed the needy. Do you see that extending after the epidemic is over and restaurants are back open again? Is there a world in which these spaces can still be activated for this kind of work? I, I think, I mean, I think there's a blend between private and, uh, and public sector have to step up because, I mean, retail, I mean, restaurants are retail, right? But when you, we have, 11 million restaurant workers about in this country. I would say 40% right now are unemployed, but it's not just the restaurant workers, right? It's all the other jobs that comes that, that, that the restaurant creates. So it's about 16 million people, right? That depends on restaurants. So you can't just, uh, what are you gonna say? That, uh, that all that sector is gonna be unemployed. Um, and when you take away a restaurant from a neighborhood, you also take away all other retail, right? 
so goes that nail salon that you like. Uh, you know, we were talking about uh, going to a barbershop or going to a hairdresser. Mm-hmm. That stuff's going to be gone. So you're probably talking about 30, 40 million people being unemployed for a long time. So the government has to step in. They have to. Uh, and, and they have, but I don't think it's going to I don't think it's going to be. Um, the last time, and it's going to continue. My friend in Newark here that operates a restaurant, uh, he said to me, Marcus, Newark just came back from the 1968 uh, protests. And that's how long it stays in underserved communities because mm-hmm. it's just not COVID, right? It's also bigger than COVID. It's the systemic racism that are in those communities uh, that we have to operate at the same time. Right. So with the programs in place with the government as they stand now, what is your outlook for restaurants? Like right now there's the Paycheck Protection Program. Is that enough? What what needs to be done? I think uh, there has to be a couple of more. Uh, I mean, the fact that we got the the really through the work of Independent Restaurant Coalition, you know, we got, the loan period extended, great, but uh, I and uh, that just moved the the, the goalpost. Uh, there needs to be a couple. We we need more help, you know. And when end of the day, you need you need short term fixes, but you also need long term fixes. And there there's some basic stuff that needs to happen, right? We we what's incredible in America is we can send somebody to the moon and back, but we are very cautious about investing in our own people particularly if they're black and brown, right? Mm-hmm. So what we need, I know it's not a direct answer to your question, but healthcare system that yeah. all the other countries in the world that we like to compare ourselves will figure it out circa 1947, basically two, three years after the Second World War, right? So their version has been worked on for 50 years, for, for 75 years or so, right? We need to figure out uh, unemployment, what like real system around unemployment. Right, and it does not have to be done through small businesses. It can actually—that's actually what government supposed to do, <laughs> right? So, government that governs would be great. It would be a great start, right? Um, and so, those are two small things that are not small things. That actually, because you have numbers now that shows why COVID will stay in in, in um, urban America longer than it will stay somewhere else, right? So, this is these are real issues that's going to come back at us in many different ways, right? So, I think there's a number of things, but I would like to start with a government that governs, mm-hmm. and um, and and it's 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 not sarcastically we need it more than ever, right? And I know that you wrote a piece for us about your regulars and how they've shifted and how pre-COVID there was a certain kind of regular, and then once you became a community kitchen a soup kitchen, that regular shifted. And then as COVID, as the pandemic went on, it shifted again. Can you talk yeah. about those different types of people mm-hmm. that are coming to Red Rooster specifically? Yes. So every day, um, you know, we, the eight, nine years, and even the five years before I opened Red Rooster, I, I you know, I moved up here after a catastrophic event, the biggest one in American history, 9-11. That was really the turning point for me to move to Harlem. You want to search of a community, and the be- years between post nine eleven and and opening Red Rooster, I was really researching and and learning and and listening to reading James Baldwin, going to Schomburg, and really studying who was my my community. And I had some amazing teachers like that taught me a lot about the community. 
And it was important for me to hire from the community, serve that community. But it also, um, there was a segment that I missed. Mm -hmm. And it was um, a lot of homeless people that I didn't reach out to. And uh, it wasn't until the pandemic, you know, we have a lot of programs before that, that we worked on, that we gave out turkeys during Thanksgiving and so on. But, but on a day-to-day -day basis, there was a big population that I missed. And that blind spot didn't really open up to me until COVID. Right. When we started with World Central Kitchen, the first segment of the line was homeless communities. And it works on many different ways, right? Randall's Island has a homeless community. They get bussed into 125th and Lenox mm -hmm. every day. So they actually became our first customer. And um, two weeks into the pandemic, they started to become people that clearly have, was on the job market before, maybe just got laid off. Maybe they were a bartender or a cook at another restaurant. And... Um, you know, we try to practice social distancing and you could tell that the people have been homeless or lived in shelters, they know how to wait much better than someone that is out of that system, right? So there was, there was actually a lot of kinship that was happening in, in the line. Mm -hmm. And just hang on, man, it's going to just take another 10 minutes and a lot of patience and a lot of that stuff. And then the, the last leg to the lines was maybe five weeks into it, six weeks into it. And it became much more diverse. It actually, quite frankly, it just got wider. And yeah. uh, it felt more, people came, pulled up in their cars and started waiting online. And I don't see a shame in that at all. I just think that, okay, we, we, the, the need is real. Yeah. Um, professionals lost their job and they came and looked at us as a place of, of comfort. And I really appreciate that. But the, the back and forth with the regulars are still the same. <laughs> they were pushing me. It's like, hey, chef, I like the chicken better yesterday. Right. Or, uh, the menu. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, how come I, my, I don't get the apple I had yesterday? And it's like mm -hmm. this back and forth, which still goes on. And, you know, as a cook, you just want to line. You know, just, you, just wanna, yeah. you just want people to interact with. Has it changed how you fundamentally approach the idea of hospitality and what your purpose is with these restaurant spaces? I... Yes, I want to say yes, and I'm working through how I can actually extend that. You know, I always thought that, you know, coming from Africa and having that extension, I've always felt very close to poverty. I've seen it. I lived it. I, I, I go back to it often. Uh, but a lot of this is also through either mental health or drug use. We have a methanol mm -hmm. center um, two blocks away from the restaurant, and they come up. And... I've had a blind spot for that. And it's just better to be, to work through that and how can we, what is our role? You know, we do a lot of things through Harley Meet Up in our restaurant, of course, uh, but it's helping either elderly or it's helping people who can't come to the restaurant in certain ways. He, this is a whole other uh, slice of the population. And right. we have to continue in some phase of fashion to do, continue this work. And how do you look at the actual business side of it and surviving as a business in all these different cities? If you have to work at 25% capacity, 50% capacity, if you have to put all these measures in place, like, is it doable for you? Do you have to make a shift? 
Yes, we have to pivot. You know, if I think about post-COVID, 2000, let's say January 2020, mm-hmm. I don't think we're back at that till maybe two years. You know right. what I mean? And not sure even if we're back at that capacity because maybe then we have 10% unemployment. Well, I don't know what the number, you know, there's other things that's going to happen. Just like, you know, you have to think about post the war, people come back and, you know, there's other non, 100% directed, but non-directed um, things that comes around that, right? You know, post Iraq, we had in Afghanistan, we had a lot of, uh, mental health issues and eventually mm-hmm. opioid crisis and stuff like that, that you cannot maybe direct, but there's a link there. So I think there will be other links here, unemployment, uh, depression, all of these different things. So it, it it's, it's going to take a long time to come back. I know I'm, I'm trying to be, I'm very positive in terms of restaurant and bringing people together, but I don't think we're going to be back at that run for a very long time. I've heard some chefs talking about how restaurant owners now need to be diversifying their portfolios or their businesses by launching products or getting into television or other ways of making money. Is Do you think that's a good idea? Is that realistic for most people? Or do you have other advice for restaurant owners in the audience who want to figure out how to get through this? I think you have to be a super entrepreneur. This is a moment to be entrepreneurial and everyone has something, right? If you open a restaurant, if you open a food truck, whatever it is in the space, you have a drive that is stronger than most people, right? And that's the moment that you now is the call of that moment to uh, call for that. So it might, you know, TV might be that you start something on Instagram and it grows, right? Mm-hmm. Why not? That's what a great, a lot of people start a great idea that way. Uh, you got to find an audience and you got to communicate. And this is a crisis moment. This might be once in a generation crisis moment. So, um, you know, um, yes, you have to connect with an audience and how you connect with the audience will look different for each uh, restaurant. But I think this is the time that you have to do that, absolutely, because it, it's it's going to be rough. It's hard. When you think about Red Rooster specifically and how much that restaurant is dependent on people getting together and, I don't know, being in a music venue and being in that upstairs space where sure. it's all the bar and talking across the bar, how do you even think about what that's going to look like, at least in the first phase of this? Well, um, well, we're, we're in kind of the first phase right now, right? Where we are allowed to do um, takeout. And it's been a very much a stop and start. It started with the, the curfew. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you think about now it started again. And then the, um, government, uh, the governor shut us down um, on, on Sunday and today. And so it's a lot of stops and starts and we have to reimagine what that is. But, you know, I, if anyone can do it, I know we can do it. And I believe in my team because um, it's the same team that signed up to be part of this journey. And it's also the same team that was there during Hurricane Sandy or post um really tough snowstorms and it was the same team that said you know march 9th when we started with working with world central kitchen even before people knew 
if we had masks or gloves, just like we're in, right? So we've gone through, um, through so much together. So I know that if anyone can do it, I'm always going to bet on on our team. Uh, not giving you any guarantees that we get, it's going to be the same, but I think it's a little bit uh, humble walk for a while. We'll mm-hmm. start. We might find out that that didn't work out. Then right. we have to go back. And my goal and intent is we have, before we close, the day before we closed, we had 180 employees, 70 plus 70 musicians that call Red Rooster home. Think about all the other, like the purveyors and all of that on top of that, right? My goal is to get back to that number. It took me nine years to get to that number. It probably yeah. will take me three years at least to get back to that number. But um, I... I'm a chef for life. I, I don't have an exit strategy. Like this is this is my contribution. This is what we do, and there's going to be great years and there's going to be some down years. And um, you know, I I also I've started other things. I, I started a podcast called This Moment, mm-hmm. which is uh, I'm gonna it's gonna launch this week and uh, starting in Sweden. It's gonna launch everywhere, but it was really talking about my friend and I. He's a rapper in Sweden. He's American, but lives in Sweden. And we both have African descent. What happens to two creatives when every door is shut on you? Right. We're both parents. And we, we, I entertain him in my restaurant. He performs in front of stage. And, you know, it really started with him and me talking. And, it's, uh, and, and then we went from that to, of course, the marches and Black Lives Matters and everything that has happened. I'm saying that because... In the worst of times, sometimes the most important work can get done. Mm-hmm. I know that Red Rooster in Overtown have connected with Miami in a way that we never thought we could imagine to connect. Uh, so we are more part of the community in Overtown in Miami in a different way than we would have been if we just would have opened traditionally. Not saying that's a good thing, I'm just acknowledging that in creative work, you can't plan everything. This happened. We have to fight through it. I'm f- extremely privileged to be able to do it and have a tribe with me that are willing to fight with me. Are there any other, I don't want to say silver linings, but th- things that have come up that you weren't expecting from having to do different kinds of work, like in your day-to-day life? I'm sure your schedule is wildly different than it was in January. Yeah, the biggest silver lining is that my son and I, we have our morning routine. Mm-hmm. And just, dad is not just somebody that comes in when he's asleep and, and sometimes gone when he's, he's wake, he wakes up. Like, um, so that's been amazing, too. You know, he's almost four and just spent this time. And I'm like, what did you do all this time? Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So we've, that's been amazing for me. Um, and... Uh, there's so many things that I've been able to connect, um, building it, building this very often from our basement. You know, he he's there. He's part of the podcast this moment because he's in the back sometimes. Right. I didn't want to edit that out. Why not? This is, you know, and he's been with me in many things around um, walking to Red Rooster. He walked with me in one of the marches uh, two weeks ago. Um, we had a protest. March, I want to say two Saturdays ago, he came with me, at least for the beginning part of that, right? So there's mm-hmm. real moments here that as a father, son, and family that we, that I know I wouldn't have been possible otherwise. So there's definitely stuff. 
And you mentioned the difference between the United States and other countries in terms of the social safety net, but what about the reopening? Is it going smoother for some of your other properties than it is here, or is it all just different depending on the city? I mean, I would say probably Sweden, um, um, because Sweden didn't shut down in the same way, which made it come back a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there's so many different, you know, Amanda also find it's kind of absurd also sometimes to talk about restaurant, restaurant, because the biggest pandemic we haven't solved, we will solve COVID. Right. But there is a much bigger virus that we as Americans have to solve. And food can have a major part of this. If people in the food culture can have a major part of this. And it's the virus of racism, right? And it's playing right in front of our eyes. So it's an historical American time right now that, so we, we will open our restaurants and, 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 but as a person of color, as a black man, um, that worries me more talking to my son about this, how he's mm-hmm. gonna interact. You know, he loves running in the park. He loves uh, watching birds. Uh, he loves police officers. They're much cooler than chefs. Right. <laughs> At some point, I have to tell him, you know what? That guy, the Ray that is in the park that's always so nice to you, you know, when you're about 10, 12, you probably shouldn't say hi to him anymore. Like right. th- th- these things we have to fix. We can do that. We really should. That for me, it, it's, it's, I choose to live in this country. And I'm very privileged to live here, and we have to fix that. So the racism that we're dealing with has been in this country for so long. Have the protests given you new hope that we can find change? Uh, you know what gives me hope is that, um, you know, when I looked, when I was growing up in, like a lot of us, we look at pictures from the 60s um, and sit-ins and all of that, the commitment from the African-American population. And I wouldn't think about it. I'm a black immigrant. I have the privilege to be here because of the civil rights movement, right? And what gives me hope today is that it is televised and mm-hmm. it's much more diverse. And the fact that we get help from our fellow Americans and um, that gives me hope that is, there is truly a youth movement and, and everybody's coming together, but it's a much more diverse. And that's going to, that is the reason why it's gonna be walked over the finish line. It's not like America actually cares for black people. They've had a long time to read mm-hmm. that. So the only reason why people care is really two simple reasons, because it's televised. Otherwise, because the stories are, are the same, but right. now people, and because they see their own daughters and sons marching. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so I, I see a lot of hope in, hope in that. And, um, you know, it's also beautiful to see, you know, this is, these are all Obama's kids. So, you know, I know that it's very frustrating for uh, 45, but reality, this is, this is Obama's generation, right? They're out there doing it. They were in middle school. They were in high school when, when uh, Obama, President Obama was in office. And um, this is incredible to see a unified America. And I just hope that it really, you know, leads to real change. And you saw it today in the Supreme Court, you know, that mm-hmm. there are changes that are happening. Uh, and and uh, I think they're all connected. Can you talk about how the restaurant community can help 
the protesters in this moment, like small things they could do, but also what restaurant owners, especially white restaurant owners should be doing in the long term to help the black community, what they, what they are missing in all this or have been missing. Uh, well, I, I think that, um, you know, I think it's important to reflect how did we get here, right? Mm -hmm. And then what can I do today that improves tomorrow, right? Uh, if you're in a position of leadership and higher, ask yourself what type of culture do you want to set in your organization and your customer base, right? You want it to reflect America. So what efforts are you doing to giving leadership and positions to black people and people of color mm -hmm. or marginalized people, regardless of sexuality or regardless of race. That is one. Two, if you're just a consumer, support black businesses. But also think about history, right? Black food is actually essentially the mother of all food because it came from Africa. Not only did it come from Africa, but most of the food that came from Africa was the identity of it has been taken away, right? And I'm gonna give you two very simple examples. If you wanna buy chocolate, if you wanna buy chocolate, you're buying Belgian chocolate. Now, where in Brussels is the cocoa bean? Right. right? If you're buying coffee, you're talking about, Lulu, can you, you're talking about, uh, that, yeah, this is a star of all, this is my son, this is talking this one. So if you wanna buy uh, coffee, you talk about French roast, you talk about Italian coffee. Coffee comes from, starting point is Ethiopia. Foie gras come from Egypt. So all things, high and lows, is taken out, right? So that, that changes ownership, money, financial, but it also changes aspirations, mm -hmm. right? Then when the, the chefs and talk about black farmers and black cooks, this country was built on black farmers. They were called slaves. <laughs> Right. So, so, so it's not like we don't know, you know, that this hasn't happened. Uh, who, who cooked for Thomas Jefferson? He had two young executive chefs. One was Fanny and one was Edu. You know what their age was when they were executive chefs? Hmm. 15 and 18. So think about if you're an executive chef at 15 and 18, you maybe started to work at four full-time, and of course, it wasn't called executive chefs. Right. So this is the journey of what Black King, Black Bernard done throughout the years. It's also, you can take pause and actually acknowledge that, right? So there's an acknowledgement. There is, if you're in a position higher, really figure this out, what type of business do you want to create? And in terms of uh, supporting Black-owned businesses. And I think there are also, there's also racism when it comes to business funding and getting your business off the ground. So it's the storytelling around, you know, black cuisine in America, but also then people are facing these challenges in terms of getting the funding, getting the network together and the resources together and getting the media attention and all of that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, 
we're the only country where I, as an immigrant, had access to capital, but not me as a black person. Right. We're the only country in the world as a black person you cannot get capital. But as an, uh, you know, so it, so that is a whole other. But I I I, I want to. Yes, you can do these things. Uh, you know, racism doesn't. To understand racism, you have to kind of think about it from four or five different levels, right? Racism mm-hmm. is not just the act of calling somebody the N-word. That racism almost doesn't exist anymore. That's right. not relevant, right? Racism worked in terms of institutional, systemic, interaggression, right? Those are, you know, even uh, there is a bias where someone who can never connect with self because they don't say the act, right? I think Amy Cooper is a is a really big example how a lot of racism work. It's quiet. Mm-hmm. I'm not a racist. I see, you know, I listen to Prince. Is I this the woman who called the cops on the yeah. yes, the yes. black bird watcher in Central yeah. Park? I am, you know, I'm living on a side. Uh, yeah. You know, all of those things, right? But at a time, you can use the police force as a weapon. You can't. We can yeah. get out of these situations two different ways. So it, the ism, it's not that. It, it, there's many, you have to think about it structurally. Think about how media works, how many people of color are in leaderships in media, right? Yeah. And it doesn't mean that those people who got hired one by one ever have in the, uh, those isms, but they might not have helped to change. I mean, it's something that I really appreciate to working, working with Vox. I know how much you guys actually work inside out mm-hmm. on this, right? And it's, you know? still, it's still ongoing. And there's no, still- No, but I mean, I, I know it's not perfect, but I do yeah. know that there's an inside outside push that it's really, yeah. really hard on this, you know? You know, Sonia has contributed amazing. Osai has contributed amazing. There's a lot of writers that are pushing. And I know it wasn't easy for them to push, but they're doing it. So it, it's it, it's an inside-outside game you have to have on this. Right, absolutely. And I think so many people think of racism as a binary, like I either am or I'm not, and mm-hmm. not of a spectrum as maybe I'm here on the spectrum versus here. And that there are so many things that contribute to how you could be acting in a racist way and not know about it or just not be not educate yourself enough no the interregression and then that's why for example there's also great stops right like somebody the other day i saw that the syria cops going to get away from television like fantastic yeah right those are like a over 30 years you show basically the same images so when a police officer gets to that moment the, the image is already, or that Amy Cooper, the image of who is the villain is already set, right? So mm-hmm. these are these tiny, tiny things that over years uh, builds up to this. But but anyway, I, I think one thing that I love about America, you can be in the toughest spot, but it also keeps working on itself and, and it, it realizes it's an imperfect uh, country, but making change is hard. And I'm really proud to see what's happening around 2,000 cities this weekend. Americans from all backgrounds uh, protested. And I know that uh, the, general, the, the person that works on 1600 Black Lives Matter Plaza, <laughs> very, very nervous about that. But you know what? 
a change is going to come. Right. I think the process, protests have shown just how much, just how angry everyone is. Mm-hmm. And I think to your point, the diversity of it is hugely important because it's, it's showing like, this is not just mm-hmm. one group of people. This is everyone in America getting together and every town and city and whether it's liberal or conservative people are speaking mm-hmm. out so i think i think hopefully it does lead to change it's just what can what can an everyday restaurateur chef do to really help and i think your point that hiring is a big is a big thing but you know people are taking it seriously so i worked for 25 years in this country as a chef um last week i got bombarded uh with different questions and people ask me from all sides of the house right and all my you know as a black person you live a dual life so all my uh not all but a lot of my white chef friends from all over the country called me what can i do and then you know kwame and i texted Carla and i talked to each other then i called naisha and naisha and then i called mashama then nina texted me and jj and i was talking and elbasi all the time so i was like stop we have to do something rather than just having it. And they were equally tired of this because as a black person, you realize you want to help, but how do I help? But it's also right. on other people. So, you know, um, Independent Restaurant Coalition, we, we, we came together and we decided, let's do a panel. And the panel was amazing. People cry, you know what I mean? So 10 of us, uh, all those chefs that I mentioned, plus Greg and Eduardo from the West Coast, we hosted a panel for about black chefs that they we all explained our narrative and our journey and uh we had to cut it off at i think it was three or four hundred people at that you know wow and we could have gone you know to six seven hundred people but whatever the the interest is there and the the feedback has been amazing and for me thank you rc for setting the table and thank you for the chefs to showing interest and i said listen we are not your diversity class. You don't come to this and check the box. If you guys are not doing your next pop-up with Mashama, if you're not hiring your next sous chef and calling Nina, who that's going to be, this is not working. Then, then we charge you instead. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. We're here because we want to help out. But use this panel is here for a reason, and we're lucky in the community that we have each other. But if you're going to train you have a change you can't just say i zoomed in and i was in a zoom call mm-hmm. no all these chefs you guys employ thousands and thousands of people plus you celebrity chefs on our huge platform and set the tonality cross country you want to be part of change this is your opportunity and it was it was magical it was really but it's never happened right so i'm like this needs to happen more. Like, why did it take this? Yeah. Exactly. I, I do love that it was with the Independent Restaurant Coalition because that group was founded as a response to COVID. Mm-hmm. Because I think when COVID hit, the industry realized we don't have a leadership group yes. here. We don't have a group that's really fighting yes. for independent restaurants. And now that this group is formed, there are so many uses for it. So many things, Amanda, come from a time of crisis, right? Yeah. You know, and it's, you know, Antifa really came during the Second World War against the Germans, right? And uh, you're going to hear a lot about, you know, people can hear a lot about Antifa uh, for the next six months. But but I'm just saying so many organizations were started out of a chaos, right? Like on a lighter note, Tribeca Film Festival was started right after 9-11 because nobody, mm-hmm. you know, they're, you know, 
Robert Nero and um, the team really wanted people to come back to Tribeca. So, you know, I can tell you Harlem Meetup was started because I felt, we really felt there was a crisis that people didn't come to Harlem in the same way as they came to other parts of Manhattan. But out of that, we were able to turn something negative to something positive, right? So there's right. always these dire times, if you can just work through it, out of that, some amazing time can come as well. And and we haven't turned the corner yet. We're still in it. But I'm also very positive about what can happen for our industry. I love that. So um, to the audience, I do have more questions for Marcus, but if you have any questions, now's the time to put them in the, the comment section and we can talk about your questions for Marcus. Um, but otherwise, we will, we will keep going. Um, what other uses do you see for that leadership group now that it does exist? Because so long the community was just, you know, every, every man and woman for themselves. Uh, and I think the big group was lobbying for fast food chains and, and major mm-hmm. restaurant groups. Like what, mm-hmm. what actions would you like that coalition to take on? Well, I think, I mean, first of all, Andrew and, and, and Will started, like you said, 10 years ago, 10, 10 weeks ago, 11 weeks ago. So it's very young, but it's big. So they really hit a nerve that we need in our industry. And I think these issues will continue to come up. So I hope it can be a group that really talks about marginalized people in our industry and push those uh, things to the forefront. And if it leads to even more diverse hospitality scene, fantastic. That's how you know if it's working, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I really believe so. I think it's. I think starting something is always hard, and figuring out how big it's going to be. But um, I I know that they're working really, really hard because I'm in on the calls, and I know that more and more uh, questions are coming up. So give it six months, and I think they've already established even more of their identity in terms of leadership and in terms of uh, game changing thing for industry. And and man, like starting back up the restaurant, you can almost forget the date. It's going to be super hard. You can open whatever you want, whatever date you want. It doesn't mean that the customers are ready to come back. So right. I think we're going to need independent restaurant coalition more than ever once we open back. And what happens if you get a second wave of this, right? Right. So and so so there are so many things that I know that we going to need independent restaurant coalition for. What that might be, I don't know yet, but I do know there's going to be people that in our industry, good people, hardworking people, that's going to need help and representation. Well, I think to your point at the beginning, there are so many problems with the United States that affect restaurant workers and restaurant owners in an outsized way. So mm-hmm. our, our healthcare system, mm-hmm. uh, our unemployment system, any kind of social safety net, like I think restaurant workers are one of the most vulnerable populations we have. Sure. And it's also it's very simple because the government is putting on the owners also of the owner ownership of small businesses to take care of it versus being a government issue. You know, right. like uh, in America, people pay tax and people pay a lot of tax. Um, and uh, but we commit a lot of that to war and other things. And not most other countries, they commit to uh, they just have a different approach on that. You know what I mean? They're not geared up for cold war they might be geared up for more contemporary things and contemporary challenges you know mm-hmm. and then you obviously have the 
brilliant Americans that take pride in not paying taxes. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And, I mean, it's the think, thing. And the, the bail, the, it's not really a bailout what they did create for restaurants in that it's loans. And so you've seen in other recessions, there were actual bailouts. And now there are loans with major strings attached. And I know of restaurateurs who just decided they would rather close down than take on what could be a burdensome loan. I know if you've been hearing about that as well. Amanda, but it's also about, and that's why it's so important what, what, you know, platforms like Eater and, and other platforms are writing too. It's also about getting in the room because how is it that restaurants that have 16 million workers in this country, we get one lump sum of loan and let's say other industries, let's say um, Boeing that I think employs about 143,000 people uh, get enormous amount of bailout but the total hospitality industry gets much, much, much less, right? So it's also about lobbying access and respect. Uh, and, and, you know, there's a lot of industry that doesn't employ as many people as the hospitality industry because we're independent and small for the majority mm-hmm. and don't have the pipeline in to, to Congress. Uh, we get poo-pooed on instead, you know? Uh, and, and so anyway, this is a big step forward we have a long way to go and uh, i know that we're going to continue to fight and work hard at it you know right which um which of your restaurants is opening first in the united states do you know uh, in terms of d- yeah. in dining well i that's i mean we are open for takeout in new york uh just opened this last week um supposed to open two weeks ago but then we got shut down for them because of um uh you know there was just this start and stuff with the curfew and all of that stuff right uh then overtown is opening on friday we're opening for takeout um and then i think florida will be before yeah florida yeah overtown will open before new york yeah it will be for for sit down do you think this makes you cautious before expanding? Like, does it, does it make you, do you think, I don't know, do you think it will hamper innovation and this entrepreneurial drive that pushes the restaurant industry and, and small business forward? I think those are two different questions. I don't think it will actually hamper innovation because mm-hmm. innovation and entrepreneurship can come out of a very difficult time. But I do think if we think about restaurant in the traditional form, Yes, right. Yeah. Retail will have a very diff- difficult time, uh, but I do think innovation will come out of it, and um, it's just about how do you connect, you know. So um, I don't know. Maybe uh, you know. You think about what if you go back ten years ago, fifteen years ago, what food trucks did towards restaurants and the street food scene, right? Those were for me kind of respond to post 9-11 where people wanted mm-hmm. more casual and but they kind of wanted a better vo- volume a better value than that they had before so this really pushed four walls restaurant to compete on that level right delicious yeah. right um i don't know will it be you know parlor cooking or cooking out of your 
balcony and posting it. Right, or maybe catering becomes more important because yes. people just want to control the environment in which they're in. Exactly. I think what's interesting with the food trucks is that a lot of the people who opened them were laid off of their, you know, white collar jobs yes. because of the recession. And so that mm-hmm. was their response to try to do something creative and new. So I think depending on how big this recession is, we could see some of that as well. Yeah, and it, it's, I think it's a different recession than 2008 all combined, right? Mm-hmm. I, this, this is long, this is difficult, but they're, they're out of the last recession, 2008, the craftsmanship really improved, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and whether it was beer, so that whether it was yogurt, or whatever, honey, you know, there was really some craftsmanship that really, I know this, Amanda, America will keep eating delicious food because uh, people are driven by flavor and blood driven by uh, some type of social interaction and they want to post about it. They want to talk about it, right? right. That is not going to change how we get there. I think it's too early right now to say it, but I, you know, making food should not be associated sometimes with money. The whole idea, I mean, I cooked for years and didn't get paid and I loved cooking and I love cooking more, you know, just as much today as then. So as long as you can figure out to how to connect with an audience, whether it's your neighborhood, whether it's your family, whether it's your extended family and you can create a business out of that, go ahead. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think to your point about getting to know your community in Harlem better in terms of, how big it really was and how broad it is. I think a lot of us who have been sheltering at home are really understanding the restaurant community around our blocks. So as a New Yorker, I would go out to eat every night in a different neighborhood. And now I'm eating only takeout from my own neighborhood. And it, it, it just reinforces to me how important those few restaurants are that I'm going to day after day. And like, that's what matters. And, and you know how much I appreciate that. They yeah. are like, thank you for doing that. I was speaking to one of our customers today too. She said the same thing. Like, I'm passing it around. I go to the Jamaican street on, on Tuesdays. I go to the Italian. Then I come to you on Sunday. I said, ma'am, I love you. You know, because this is the most meaningful, you know, whatever she spent for her family, you know, four days a week. And I was like, so there are relationships being built. And I'm like, I, I, rem- I will always remember her, you know? So there's a level of humility yeah. and appreciation that is bigger than ever. So that's beautiful that you guys do that as a family. Yeah, and I think that if people ask me all the time, who's going to survive and who's not going to survive? And I think it's impossible to predict. But in general, if you can be vital to your community and if you can find a way to serve your neighbors, you have a better chance than someone who's a destination restaurant and you're built off tourists or office workers or just people building buzz around you and coming in from outside the neighborhood. But, but that's a really important question. Like for me, this is not check or checkers, right? This is, this is people's lives that we're talking about. So, yeah. you know, I think about this as a, as a, as a chef that I work for a long time and have a platform and, you know, going back a little bit to the panel, right? I said, you don't understand why this is so important because there's a lot of mar- marginalized people around the world that look to America, how America saw it. I mm-hmm. wish I was coming up, when I was coming up, there was a platform where black chefs can speak to the, the chef community in Germany, in Switzerland, in France. There were none of that. People, were, people told me, Marcus, you need to lower your dreams and you should be grateful that you have a job here. Go home, you know what I mean? 
So it, it is important. And, and, and speaking to, you know, the aspiration and inspiration is very, very important, right? So speaking towards that, like for me, it's, I will do everything I can to make sure that my community will have restaurants and that's really what we converted Holly Meat up to really support that. But mm -hmm. also that black, black Chefs has a voice, right? Yeah. So for example, with the next, my, my book, The Rise, it's 40 African-American that have contributed what I think the most to food in this country from writers to chefs. And out of that, we create a really one scholarship of um, residency. So people can take pause, a chef can take pause, study, mm -hmm. reflect, and then eventually present something the way artists can do it, right? right. That it was never in being around ever, right? So the fact that we can do that is in this time when it's super tough to do anything, it's a privilege. You have to acknowledge your level of privilege and then figuring out how can you give back. And as a, as a, as a black chef of, of, of privilege, that's my role. I love that. Well, I'm excited to hear about what happens with it. It's, the book is coming out soon, right? In October, in October, yeah, so the rise, okay. and, and it's amazing. I mean, Mashama, we, we focus on 15 chefs, uh, like some of you very, very well-known, Kwame and, and Eduardo, and then we focus on some there, uh, that deserve to be known. So it, it, it's just this incredible coalition of amazing professionals. I love that. I think that's a great note to end on. Um, Thank you so much, Marcus, for, for having this talk and also all that you do, um, especially with feeding your communities, with your restaurants. Um, excited to see what happens with the book and with the IRC and all the good work that's happening there. Well, Amanda, I'm just glad that we only got one interruption from Zion. On this. <laughs> so, I do uh, hear my kids having a bath in the other room and I'm like, yeah. oh, I hope everyone is going to We got in. an ice cream served. He, he left an ice cream here. So like, just good eats. <laughs> awesome yeah. um oh wait sorry i do see we have we have a comment um yeah. let's let's hit one um what is it this is appropriate what's it like to be home with your child and able to cook for him during a pandemic oh it's been awesome we we, we got a mean scrambled egg go, uh, going on every morning uh Sometimes we even cook the scrambled eggs. Sometimes we just scrambled. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, Zion is now into the egg yolk because that has that, that beautiful texture that he loves to just like uh, play around with. So it's been great. It's, 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 uh, we wake up early. We're excited. We, it's been fun. Awesome. And what two or three restaurants are you excited to go and sit in once we're safely fully open? Not your own, but someone else's. Yeah. You know, I I can't actually wait to go to see uh, Mashama Bailey. Uh, I just I adore Mashama Bailey. I think she's amazing, and um, I'm also excited. Um, uh, always, I mean, if here in 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 New York, for example, um, I love what Atla is doing in stuff stuff like that. I just think that Daniela is an amazing chef, and I just think that you know, for me, it's uh, young female chefs with a strong attitude and you can see it in the food there's nothing more exciting i just i love daniela's food i love her attitude i just think it's it's stuff like that's great 
Love that. And one last one for you. Do you see restaurants becoming more expensive in the next one to two years to cover all the lost revenue? I'm not sure if you can make it back by doing that because customers are going to have a certain level of, you know, the, the, they have their budget. So I think some prices will go up. Some restaurants will become more expensive, but, um, you know, that's not an, for Red Rooster. We can't just charge more, you know, it's just not going to be the solution. You know, we're, we're in the community and of the community so that um, we, we couldn't do that. But, but maybe if you have a tasting menu that is already at 285, maybe it can be 315. Maybe you have that option. You know, I, the restaurant's almost broad because so many different variations. So uh, maybe there is a little bit of room for certain restaurants, but for others, there's not. Right. Uh, there was one question for me about what responsibility does food media have in helping bring back the restaurant industry? Um, I think all we can do is report on what's happening out there and try to highlight restaurants that are reopening and what they're doing and the struggles that they're going through and how you can help. I think also that can extend to how you can help feed communities. Food kitchens are, are really in need of help right now. Um, it's really all going to depend, I think, on if people want to go out to eat as well and all the ways in which they can do it safely and alternatives to going out to eat if there are still a lot of takeout options and other ways to engage with restaurant businesses. Um, I thought at first when I saw that question, it was going to be about our responsibility for, um, you know, highlighting black and marginalized uh, restaurant owners and chefs. And I think that's a huge responsibility that we have and that many, most, all of us have been failing on. Um, so I think that's a, a big project for us to work on in terms of coverage and in terms of hiring and making sure we're doing a better job in that regard. Yeah. I mean, but I think, I think also, I mean, Vox has done part of that is also connecting in many ways. Sometimes people come there through a blog or Instagram through a story, but sometimes it's also, consumer events that are could be open for whether they are uh, virtual or you know but it's really connecting mm -hmm. you know the the interested audience with and then it's a part of discovery right so that's really linked to curiosity for, for the editors like is right. the curiosity level so you know when when you think about how eater is built with with these local offices those are key because it really evens the playing field whether you're in memphis or, or in 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 um, LA or New York, you know what I mean? Which yeah. wasn't the case before. So I think there's a lot of work that's already gone into that. But of course, it can always be done more, and that's an important journey. Well, and you've um, often helped us with our Young Guns program, and I think mm -hmm. that is a, a great tool for us because we don't have to focus on you know the upper echelons of fine dining. It's all about who's doing cool stuff at the ground level. Yeah communities and who's coming up and who do we need to be paying attention to. So I think that's a great outlet for us as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, all right. I think we are out of time. So I will let you go. Kicking out out of the building. With your kids with your kid. Um, yeah. I'm sure it's about time for you as well. So yes. I will go read some right. bedtime stories. Um, thank you again for your time and everything you do. Thank you everyone for sending in questions and You're for right. watching and listening. Uh, and tune into more 92nd Street Y live events. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Paul. Bye.